the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. It's time now for a smart plane talk regarding politics, Israel, and the law. This is the Victory Hour with Andrew Parker of Parker Daniels Keyboard. Wise counsel, winning results. Now, here's your host, Andrew Parker. I'm impressed with my attorney, Bernie. I'm impressed with his influential friends. He's got very big connections. It's Sunday, 4 o'clock, and that means it's the best hour in radio of the week. It is the Victory Hour. I'm Andrew Parker, and we're coming to you coast to coast when you live stream us. Yes, indeed. Even across the pond, where the Open Championship was recently played. Always enjoyable to watch the Open. Uh, And we welcome you once again and thank you for joining us wherever you might be. If you missed the show, of course, at 4 to 5 on 1280 AM, The Patriot, or live streaming, you can pick it up as it runs again from 6 to 7 Central Time on Freedom 1570. And, of course, we've got podcasts galore. Go to the Andrew Parker Podcast, and you can get hundreds, literally, of episodes of the Victory Hour as we talk politics, Israel, and the law each week coming to you from the Parker Daniels Keyboard Studio in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Last week, uh, if you joined us, you know that we talked about the visit to the joint session of Congress by the President of the State of Israel, Yitzhak Herzog, Bougie Herzog. And it was a fabulous speech to the joint session uh, across the board, adulation and Really, uh, great critical review of the speech was given from right to left, with the exception of the progressive far left, who in what I would call anti-Semitic double standards, uh, views the state of Israel far differently than most of us. Uh, And they take the side of those who hate and those who support terror against the state of Israel. And that is in the form of Hamas, in many respects, in the form of the PLO and Fatah, who control the West Bank and Hamas controlling Gaza, although at certain times, while they 
fight with one with one another, they come together as as one as well. And they support the role of Iran in the region, which, of course, is an undermining of peace, as I discussed last week. One of the things mentioned by President Herzog, and we did not get into all that much other than the last few minutes of the show last week, was the domestic turmoil in Israel over reform of the judiciary in the state of Israel. And it is really an interesting issue, not just for Israel, but for other democracies around the world, including uh, our separation of powers system, constitutional system of government here in the United States. There are a series of interesting questions and the work and the, the the tumult and the turmoil that Israel is going through and the arguments being made on both sides uh, really are a case study in some of the most fundamental and important principles for any democracy. So I want to talk about that today uh, and Talk about it maybe a bit differently than you're reading about it if you are in the mainstream media. As the mantra, the the narrative, the headline that is often pushed by the mainstream media is that Bibi Netanyahu and his quote-unquote fascist government wants to weaken the role of law, the role of the judicial branch of government in one of the most active and true forms of democracy anywhere in the world, and that is in Israel. So Israel certainly itself is deeply divided. The debate over the changes in the role of the Supreme Court in Israel raises questions, as I say, of the proper role of the court in any democracy. Note that every democracy derives their power from the people. And if it's true democracy without uh, corruption, the people go to the polls and they elect officials to then make the law. And because they are elected by the people, it is deemed that the majority gets to determine what the law is. However, in order to protect the minority from too much power of the majority rule, there are often separate branches of government. You have the two elected branches, the Congress in the United States and the presidency. Congress makes the laws, the executive branch, presidency, or in states it would be the governor, uh, enforces the law, carries it out. There are some other roles that the executive branch plays as well. And it has some 
significant authority in its enforcement to create rules, uh, executive orders in our country, they're called, but administrative rules as well, determined by the executive branch. And so these two branches of government are democratically elected, as we know. But the judicial branch is not. And the judicial branch interprets the law. And how far-reaching those interpretations can go in terms of ignoring the true intent of the elected bodies is a big question for any democracy. And it's one that we are grappling with here in this country. Joe Biden's administration wants to weaken the Supreme Court here. Kind of the, what Bibi Netanyahu people claim is trying to do is to weaken the judiciary, which he believes is too strong in Israel. And by the way, he ran this last election on this as one of his primary issues, reform of the judiciary. Now, one very big difference, profound difference between the United States or between Israel and uh, the United States and other democracies, not all, but some other democracies, is that the U.S. has a constitution. Many of these other democracies do as well. Israel does not. Some of the other democracies don't either. But they do have rules in order to create checks and balances between these forms of government. And it's worth noting that while governments derive their power, democracies derive their power from winning elections, that is a common point in all democracies. The differences between various democracies are significant. First is what I just was talking about, restraints that are placed on pure majority rule. And conversely, restraints that are placed on judiciaries who are not elected by the people and that are there to restrain majority preferences. The question of what the checks and balances are that guarantee democratic rule but equally protect minority rights is really what is being grappled with. Both here a little bit in the United States when they talk about packing the court and doing, but fundamentally the changes here are are not uh, as significant as they're talking about in the state of Israel. But the reason for the changes is to, depending on how you look at it, increase or decrease democratic rule and governance as the majority rule, and protect minority rights and how those two play out. When we come back after this short break, uh, I'm going to talk about a few examples that will demonstrate the differences between different democracies and then talk about where Israel sits. And later we'll, uh, we'll get into 
the real battle in the streets in the state of Israel for judicial reform. Interesting subject because it instructs democracies not just in the Middle East, which there is one and only one, that is Israel, but also uh, other parts of the world. Go to ParkerDK.com during this short break. Stay with us. It's only going to get more titillating and interesting. Yes, indeed. Democracy at work. We should be hailing the protests and the way that they are being carried out in Israel because it is an example set for the rest of the world. Democracy is not always easy. Oh, no. But people's voices being allowed to be heard is a cornerstone, and it's being seen in the state of Israel. We'll be right back after this short break. Make sure to stay with us. Victory Hour. I'm Andrew Parker. Thank you once again for joining us. We're talking about democracy. We're talking about the interplay and push and pull between majority rule and minority rights and making sure that society is reflective of the values of the people. Let me give you a few examples that will demonstrate how democracies work differently as it relates to their judiciary. In the U.S., for example, uh, there are limits on the power of the majority, and they are formalized, and they're extensive. Uh, They're not based so much on tradition or unwritten rules, which is much more the case in the 75-year-old state of Israel. Israel does not have a constitution. Uh, And at this point, to put together a constitution could tear the fabric of the entire society, the culture in Israel. And it may be very, very... It certainly will be very, very difficult to do, but it may be an exercise that they do not want to engage in. Israel has had a few other things on its mind over its first 75 years, of course, staying alive with enemies who want to destroy it as a country and as a people in the Middle East. So the Constitution, while it doesn't exist... They have unwritten rules. They have traditions. They do have basic laws, they call them, which are kind of fundamental laws that uh, are driven by the values of the country. But they do not have a constitution. So the power here in the United States is divided, as we know, between the federal government and the state governments. And in the federal government, we have three branches— as I indicated uh, before the break, 
and that our rules are set and grounded and tethered in a constitution that requires the agreement of three-quarters of the states and two-thirds majorities in both houses of Congress in order to amend. So it's not easy to amend the Constitution. And all of our laws, as I say, are tethered to that Constitution in one form or another. The president, one of the three branches, can veto legislation that is adopted by the elected officials in Congress, uh, another of the three branches of government. But Congress can come back and override the veto with two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress. And what about the Supreme Court, the third branch? Well, they can strike down legislation that is adopted by the elected officials in Congress. But they can only strike it down if it's deemed unconstitutional. And this is one of the big issues that just passed this week in the state of Israel. The Israeli Supreme Court, because they don't have a constitution, can strike down decisions by their legislature, the Knesset, because they deem those decisions to be, quote, unreasonable, close quote. Unreasonable. And uh, the, it, it almost appears that the body of the Supreme Court who can trump the democratically elected legislature just in determining something they believe is unreasonable has an inordinate amount of power. It's not tethered to a constitution. So that is one of the reasons that Bibi Netanyahu and others want to shift some of the strength of the Supreme Court because they become philosopher kings like Plato wrote. And they're unelected. That's a key. They are unelected. And they get to determine what's reasonable and what's not. Now, in the United States, the Supreme Court can strike down legislation as unconstitutional, for sure. And their ruling is final. But another point that is of importance is justices are themselves chosen by the political branches in this country. So there is some connection to the people. Elections have consequences. If you elect a president and they are of a certain mind in terms of who they might appoint as Supreme Court justices, that's going to weigh on your vote. And it has. It's often referred to and discussed, as you all know. So it is tethered to, again, tethered to uh, our democratic system. Yes, these justices are not themselves elected, but they are chosen by the political branches, and that is nominated by the president and Senate confirmation. So that's how it works here in the United States. It doesn't work that way uh, in Israel. 
the, the members of the Supreme Court, as I've already indicated, have extraordinary power to overturn, simply based on reasonableness, decisions by the elected officials. Uh, and secondly, the members of the Supreme Court in Israel are not chosen by the elected officials. Now, you know, in some respects they are. Uh, there's a committee that exists that selects, and, and, and on that committee of, I believe it's nine, and it takes seven to select for the Supreme Court of those nine. Um, but three of them come from the court already. So the current court, if you have a very liberal court and you have three on the committee that are staunchly liberal, you can never get to seven to replace one of those with a conservative justice, for example. Even if the country just elected a conservative government or has for years elected conservative governments. They can't change the Supreme Court or get their selections on the court. So it's an interesting issue of the selection process that is a big difference. Let's turn to Canada for another example. They have a written constitution, though it's, you know, it's based on uh, British uh, rule, law, constitutional concepts. Uh, in Canada, the prime minister appoints the Supreme Court justices, but the parliament and provincial legislatures can, by a simple majority vote, override Supreme Court decisions for a limited number of years. So it's not like in the U.S. where they're, they're final Supreme Court decisions. And they are not affected by elected officials, other than who's on the court is affected by that. Uh, so in Canada, they find this balance by having by allowing the Supreme Court to issue rulings uh, but elected officials, number one, appoint the Supreme Court justices. And elected officials can, by simple majority, override Supreme Court decisions for a limited number of years. And that limited number of years issue is very interesting because after that time period, the r- ruling comes back into effect unless the legislature acts again to stop it. Hmm. And so you have elected officials who are, or or you have the judiciary who who are overseeing laws enacted by elected officials, but then you have elected officials who can come back and override the Supreme Court decisions. Uh, But if they don't do something different with legislation, Their override only lasts for a limited number of years. And after that time, again, the ruling comes back into effect. So, you know, that's interesting. And that's different than the United States. It's also different from Israel. But I'm giving you a a few different examples of what democracies have decided to do in order to create this balance 
between this check and balance between the three branches of government. And, you know, in the United States, we have very three very clear branches of government. And Article 1, 2, and 3 discuss each of the branches of government. The structure is discussed in our Constitution. Um, but in most democracies, there is an executive branch, somebody who leads the government. And there also is a legislative branch of electeds or a parliament or in Israel, a Knesset. And there is the judiciary, the judges. So the interplay between the three is what is in part being grappled with in Israel and has resulted in enormous hundreds of thousands of people protesting in the streets. But they are protesting with voice. They are not protesting with arson or looting or death or destruction, which occurs in many countries across the world. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the judicial reform in the state of Israel, about these protests, and about how uh, we think it might turn out. Stay with us. It's the Victory Hour. Politics, Israel, and the law each week. Coming to you from the Parker Daniels Keyboard Studio. Go to parkerdk.com. We'll be right back. Thank you once again for joining us as we're talking about democracy. We're talking about the role of the judiciary in democratic countries around the world, but most particularly in the state of Israel, where we are seeing live daily boiling up the hurly burly of democracy, the difficulties of the freedoms that democracy bring and the connection of how we order ourselves in society and how the people decide that rather than dictators, tyrannical regimes, fascist regimes, communist regimes who dictate to the people, the people dictate to the government. Establish the government, decide who is the government, who makes the decisions, sets the laws, interprets the laws. These are fundamental building blocks of our democracy and our freedom and liberty, which is why they're so important and so important uh, certainly to me. And watching what's going on in the state of Israel is really phenomenal if you think about it, as they grapple with the very issues that our founders grappled with a couple hundred plus years ago. And we're seeing it right now. It's very interesting. So beyond just the interplay between the three branches of government and what the branches are tethered to here, a constitution, 
There are other limits on judicial power beyond the checks and balances. And whether there is a written constitution tethering the issues, too. In the U.S., we have a requirement in order to go to court. It's called justiciability. A case has to be justiciable has to be ripe and proper to bring to the court by the proper parties. You have to have standing, which means that a party must have a direct personal stake in the issue to bring it to court. We have that issue front and center in the case that I'm handling out in Arizona, where we brought an action to enjoin the use of voting machines in Maricopa and other parts of Arizona prior to the 2022 election. The federal court kicked out our case saying we did not have standing, even though we represented two candidates who were running for office who had asserted allegations in their complaint based on Uh, expert testimony and information that the voting machines counting the vote were not reliable and that they could be hacked and that the system that was being used, these candidates did not believe was viable or, or reliable to count the vote. So they wanted to enjoin those. And the court ruled that they don't have standing, even though they're candidates and they would be directly affected. So the standing requirement here has also kicked out uh, many, many cases, nearly 100, I believe, across the country related to the last election, the 2020 election, saying that these people bringing cases, whether they're valid or not valid, do not have standing to bring the cases. It's kind of a technical legal rule, but... And it's one that prevents you from having the merits of your case heard. And so while everyone says, oh, there were, you know, 100 cases that were brought and they were all kicked out of court with no merit at all. Actually, virtually all of them, 95% or more of them, the merits were never looked at. Because they were kicked out on standing and other technical requirements. So not just anyone can get to the court in the United States. Standing and justiciability prevent it. The justiciability standard separates legal issues that are rightly a court's to decide from policy issues. And that's very important. You have elected officials that develop and determine policy. The courts should not be doing that. They're just there to interpret the law. And when they get into political questions or policy questions... Uh, it becomes a real concern because they're not elected officials. Um, In Israel, they neither have a standing nor a justiciability requirement. Anyone can challenge a law or a government decision. Anyone, even if they're unaffected by it directly. And the Supreme Court in Israel can rule on almost any policy matter, including cabinet appointments and military policies. 
So consider that. These are unelected officials who sit on the court. So as courts consider whether to override decisions of elected officials, they must also rely on some standard by which to judge those actions. And that's another issue. In the U.S., the standards all flow from the Constitution and then case law that has interpreted the Constitution and laws call in, 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 uh, previously called stare decisis so that people know how to order their affairs. They're not just guessing. We have some foundation in the law. So you look at the Constitution, the statutes, how they're written, what the legislature, the legislature, the elected officials intended. We have canons of construction to interpret those. And then you look at the case law as well that have interpreted prior, uh, previously. And uh, except for uh, rare occasions, but they do occur, as we saw in the Dobbs case on over overturning uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, there is a continuation of precedent that creates decisions all the way up to the Supreme Court. And at the Supreme Court level, of course, interpretations uh, may or may not change. But this cements in place some standards that we can rely on. But where there is no Constitution, some basis must be used upon which the Supreme Court can make its determinations. And in Israel, it's reasonableness, as I said earlier in the show. Problem is that if a majority of an elected uh, legislature have passed a law for the Supreme Court to come in, as they do in the state of Israel, and call it unreasonable, seems like it's elevating the views of the judges on policy matters above those who speak for the people because they were elected. Very important difference. And this week in the state of Israel, the legislature struck down this reasonableness standard and have now declared that it cannot be used in the way it has been by the Supreme Court. It was a 64 to nothing vote. There are 120 members of the Knesset, 64 to nothing. Where'd the other 56 go? Well, they didn't vote out of protest. So really, it's 64 for and 56 against is what occurred. Uh, When judges merely substitute their preferences for those of elected officials, you've got to be a bit concerned because, again, they are not elected. And I quote Michael uh, Shaket, a legal scholar in the state of Israel, quote, when the court cannot base its decisions on a legal system with principles and rules, but rather only on the facts of the case and the views of the judges on the panel, this will no longer be making law. The court will cease to play a judicial role and begin to function as a council of wise men. Philosopher Kings. Not tethered, not connected 
to the people in the same way elected officials are connected. One more quote for you. On the other side, because a lot of this in Israel, the system in Israel flowed from Supreme Court Justice Aaron Barak, who served as a member of the court from 1978 to 95 and its president from 95 to 06, long tenured Supreme Court Justice, a father of law, really, in the state of Israel. Barak, a very liberal activist judge, stated, The judge of a Supreme Court is not a mirror. He is an artist, creating the picture with his or her own hands. He is legislating, engaging in judicial legislation. Judicial creativity, judicial legislation is natural to law itself. Law without discretion is a body without a spirit. Judicial creativity is part of legal existence. Such creativity, judicial lawmaking, is the task of a Supreme Court. I mean, that embodies an activist view of the court. And that's what exists in Israel today. The Netanyahu administration wishes to change that. And they ran on it and they got elected. Not just on that issue, but others. So they're pushing forward. We'll talk about how they're doing that on the other side of this break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Go to ParkerDK.com. We're back. We're talking justice. We're talking democracy and democratic majority rule versus protection of minority rights, the role of the judiciary in a democracy. And specifically, the laboratory of life we are seeing play out in the state of Israel regarding the issue of the role of the judiciary. There have been great uh, protests in Israel for months over this issue. And it is, uh, I think, perhaps the best example that we have seen anywhere of how a democracy works and how freedom and liberty affect democratic thought. The protests in Israel have been peaceful across the board. In fact, a video uh, recently came out from last weekend with hundreds of thousands of protesters on both sides, by the way, of this issue. Uh, Not more or less on either side. Uh, An enormous split And hundreds of thousands of protesters coming to Tel Aviv and other places in the country, but certainly in Tel Aviv. They were there when I was there recently, just a couple months ago. And uh, I saw the protests. But a recent video came out with protesters on opposite sides of a train station escalator. And on opposite sides of the judicial reform debate as well. 
very aggressively, fervently protesting, but peacefully with one another. One sat on one side of the escalator, the other on the other side. And they are seen greeting each other warmly, all of them with Israeli flags. I mean, it, it, it almost made you tear up. It, it makes your heart swell. As you see how democracy works, and so seldom does it, is it viewed that way, and is it carried out that way. It's befitting of the kinship of the Israeli people, certainly, and, and of their commonality. However, they have such strong opinions on this subject, and it is such an important subject for a democracy, any democracy, uh, to have them carry it out with such warmth while having vitriolic debate. Uh, was really, um, it's just so seldom seen. So this debate about judicial reform covers uh, reducing or eliminating the current role of the Bar Association and of current Supreme Court judges in the selection of Supreme Court judges. Because the Bar Association and the judges make up five of the nine seats that are on the selection committee. And they vote as a block. The three judges from the Supreme Court that are on the committee, because the court is such a liberal left court, perpetuating itself year in, year out, regardless of who the electeds are, for, for many years the conservatives in Israel have been, if not in power, a part of it. Not all consistently, but for many years, a, a significant part of uh, the majority in the Knesset. And they have little or no representation on the Supreme Court through any of this. Why? Because of the perpetuating nature of the selection of the judges. So that's, that's one thing that the reform would do. De- demanding that a supermajority of judges, there are 15 that sit on the Supreme Court in Israel, some proposals they're talking about 12, uh, a supermajority of 12 must agree in order to override or strike down laws that were adopted by the electeds of the people by the representatives of the people. So they want a supermajority rather than just a simple majority. Uh, third, and probably most controversial, the Coalition for Change wants to provide for a Knesset override of any Supreme Court ruling. So if the Supreme Court says, nope, you can't do that, Knesset, the Knesset can override the Supreme Court, because, of course, the Knesset is the elected body. The Supreme Court isn't. But there's debate over whether it should be a supermajority to override or just a simple majority. That's still being debated. But allowing any override is being debated as well. Another ruling is on this reasonableness doctrine that I talked about uh, on the other side. 
And doing away with that just got voted on because it's not tethered to anything. And it gives unbridled authority, really, to the Supreme Court, an unelected unelected body. So when you look at the overall debate, and I want to I want to quote uh, quote from Natan Sharansky as I leave you. Uh, he says, "I disagree with both sides in the debate," uh, stating that the proposed reform package really takes it from one extreme to the other extreme. We need compromise. We need consensus. Well, they're trying for it. They're not getting anywhere. Although they did pass this uh, reasonableness doctrine You've been resolution. To the victory hour with Keep watching. Packard, See how they develop keyboard, their judicial branch Council, in the state of Israel. Very interesting for, for democracy. Go to another great week. Next time, and another great hour with you all. Until next week. All Have a great week. Are simple, and many can be expressed in a single word. Freedom. Justice. Honor. Duty. Mercy and hope. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.